0: Hello and welcome to the Access of Space, Defense, and Security podcast. I'm Omkar Nikam, your host for this episode. In this podcast, we explore the latest developments and trends in the fields of space exploration, defense technology, and national security. Each episode features insightful interviews with experts and industry leaders who share their perspectives on a wide range of topics, including the latest advances in satellite technology, space exploration missions, military defense strategies, cybersecurity, and more. Whether you are a space enthusiast, a military professional, or someone interested in the latest innovation in technology and security, this podcast has something for you. Join us as we delve into the cutting-edge research, breakthroughs that are shaping the future of space, defense, and security. Stay tuned. Yeah, that's an extensive perspective, I would say, uh, because uh, it is really needed, as you mentioned, that, you know, uh, it is not going off topic, but we needed this background to understand uh, how the current conflict is unfolding and why Saudi Arabia has, is having the current stand. So uh, just just uh, I would say a little bit to move ahead uh, with the conversation. So uh, what is the regional reaction to the current conflict from other countries? Uh, and uh, you mentioned about the leverage as well. So is there any leverage that can be used by other Arab countries against Israel.
1: So, um, you have divided to this part. Uh, this question in two parts, which is one the yeah. regional reaction, and second, is there any leverage to this? So, yeah. let's begin with the regional reaction as well, because uh, we have talked about Egypt, we have talked about Jordan, Saudi Arabia, um, yes. uh, Qatar. We also have that. One of, one question is about the regional reaction. One of the major reactions is let's begin with Turkey. Let's go one by one. Turkey. Turkey maintains close relations with Hamas. Largely due to the substantial funding it has provided to Hamas through the Turkish Cooperation and Coordination Agency, but also the political support from Turkey to Hamas because there are a lot of offices as well. Despite that, in the beginning of the conflict, beginning of the October 7 attack, Erdogan had moderated his rhetorics instead of harshly criticizing israel as he had done in the past erdogan restrained his language and stated that israel and palestine should act with restraint and refrain from hostile acts that could worsen the situation because he was positioning turkey as a potential mediator between the conflicting parties by adding that turkey is ready to provide any uh, you know de- uh, prevent ne- necessary assistance to prevent this kind of situation from escalating this was a major dis- major disappointment for Hamas as they had expected more from Erdogan. They had expected more from the leader of Turkan. Because there is a history as to why Erdogan has controlled his rhetoric and was testing the waters with the situation as it unfolded, similar to that of uh, Saudi Arabia. I mean... A lot of people just overlook that. A lot of people just think, look at the present situation that is unfolding, what is the reaction. They don't realize that for any uh, country, all decisions that are being made are not just based on our development that has taken place in the past couple of months or a past couple of weeks or days, but it's been taking place for the past couple of years because of which the rhetorics, the the statements are being come up. To begin with, uh, in the case of Turkey, turkey has been cha- having a lot of economic challenges due to various economic policies that they have made they had taken in the past which led to inflation and decline in the turkish lira value and Additionally, they were having internal issues with regards to the Syrian refugee crisis, which further uh, escalated their socio-economic conditions in the country. In the backdrop of these challenges, you had the G20 summit that was held in New Delhi in September, where there was the announcement of the IMAC project, which is the India, Middle East and European Economic Corridor. This project aimed to enhance the transportation and communication links between Europe and Asia through rail and shipping networks, and it was considered as a countermeasure to Belt and Road Initiative, the BRI project of China. This project was opposed by Erdogan because the entire IMAC project was supposed to go through UAE, Saudi Arabia, Jordan, Israel, and then to go Greece. And thereby it completely bypassed the t- t- Turkey despite turkey being traditionally viewed as a critical junction between asia and europe moreover turkey is geographically much more suitable option as compared to greece if you look at the world map alongside that this economic project uh, the imac project that was there completely altered the economic and maritime dynamics of the region and that is the reason why initially Erdogan was hold restraining his rhetorics as his effort to position as and positioning Turkey as a mediator after he had failed to do so in the Russia-Ukraine war and as a broader strategy of showcasing Turkey as a major power in the Middle East project. Moreover, Turkey had restored its diplomatic ties with Israel in 2022 only by a stab exchange of ambassadors also taken place. And that decision was also taken place because Turkey was diplomatically isolated in the region and reestablishment of relations with Israel was a strategic way of bolstering its economy through various investments and everything. That was one, one step at a time kind of a decision that was being made in terms of foreign policy decision. Now, with the announcement of the IMAC project, the diplomatic relation that they had made became even more critical as it opened opportunities for negotiations with Israel with regards to Turkey being included in the IMAC project which would create, because not only that, it uh, good relations with Israel would mean that they would be able to have a generate a goodwill for Ankara with Washington as well and improve its standing in East Mediterranean. This brings us to another factor, which is the East Mediterranean, because Turkey is having maritime interest in the region with regards to the natural gas and everything. And that is the reason why Turkey had um, involved in the Libyan civil war as well. And it had supported um, uh, GNA, which is a government of national accord, because uh, Turkey was considering that all the other Countries that are already involved in uh, the Libyan civil war are against its regional interest, and it were challenging its maritime boundary and energy exploration rights in the region. Moreover, you had the uh, Israel-Turkey gas pipeline, which is also there, which would direct gas to Turkey and supply subsequently the other South, uh, other European countries as well to reduce its reliance on energy, Russian energy. All of these factors have a critical uh, role as to why there was restrained, measured statements that were coming from. Moreover, you had Erdogan who met Netanyahu at the sidelines of the UN General Assembly meeting in New York. The relations had been, uh, restoration of ties was in 2022. The meeting between Erdogan and Netanyahu could have taken place that time as well because There were a lot of diplomatic movement as well that was taking place between the two countries after that. But this took place only at the sidelines of the meeting in New York was because that meeting took place after the project was announced in Delhi. Suggesting that that meeting would have been, look, We how about you also include Turkey? We have the geographical positioning as well. We connect Europe and Asia uh, for decades. And we also have this Bosphorus Strait, which again plays a critical role in the maritime industry. So it's not just one or two, but many factors that have influenced a measured response from Turkey after the Alaksa floods attack on October 7th. However, as the conflict progressed, Erdogan's rhetorics again changed Against Israel and intensified due to strong public support in Turkey for the Palestinian cause. This shift, shift was significant because Turkey's close relations with Hamas and hosting Hamas offices, there were growing dissatisfaction among the public regarding the government stance on the conflict. The public sentiment in Turkey was very vocal in criticizing the leadership for not supporting the Palestinian cause, particularly in light of the humanitarian crisis that started uh, rising in Gaza due to the ground offensive. Moreover, there was—I uh, mean—these <clears throat> developments are particularly relevant as well in regards to the upcoming elections as well in. Uh, Turkey because even though Erdogan has won the presidential election this year you are having other elections that are coming through and there were reports by Politico uh, in the earlier stages when Erdogan was still having this presidential elections in Turkey that Biden would cooperate with whoever wins the presidency in Turkey whoever wins was in quotation marks so all of this public sentiment and the political climate, Erdogan's statements eventually evolved, he began to condemn Israel's actions and started referring to them as collective punishment and said, even went on to the extent by saying, Hamas is not a terrorist organization, but rather a group of fighters and labeled Israel as a terrorist state. And he also emphasized for the need for an uh, independent, sovereign Palestinian state in Gaza, which was a remarkable shift from his earliest position of a measured rhetoric, because <clears throat> he also went uh, of the public pressure. Erdogan went one step ahead. He just not criticize Israel after uh, the attack, uh, ground offensive, but he also started criticizing the United States for having that unwavering support for the conflict and demonstrate refusing to meet Anthony Blinken because Anthony Blinken had visited Turkey and he was going there to meet Erdogan only. But Erdogan decided not to meet him and he was busy sipping tea somewhere in uh, uh, the scenic highlands and furthermore encouraged boycotts of American companies like Starbucks and McDonald's, which is on a broader level, if you look at across the world, on a broader level, it's called the boycott disinvestment and sanctions movement, which is the BDS movement, which is implemented to encourage public not to buy produ- products that are produced by Israeli companies. So, more, this stance is critical for to, uh, to appeal to Erdogan's voter base, which is uh, brought him into presidency because they are very conservative and view Hamas as a legitimate Palestinian actor and they hold favorable views towards the Muslim Brotherhood in the region. And which is, and again, Hamas is the Palestinian branch of the Muslim Brotherhood. So, given the or multitude challenges that Turkey is facing, including the economic challenges and everything, Erdogan's emphasis on Palestinian cause can be seen as a strategic move. Because it is important for Erdogan to emphasize on the Palestinian cause, to attract its water base and use it as a diversion from the internal issues that are being taking place uh, right now in the country. Moreover, it is important to realize and recognize that Turkey, in comparison to other Arab countries and Arab Muslim countries, it is much more liberal. Obviously, it is open to argument. but the political system in Turkey allows for space and for public outcry and public sentiments to be expressed regarding major political developments. You have elections taking place, uh, etc. So that is why the uh, Turkish public dissatisfaction with the government's initial response has led to a major shift in the rhetorics over time. Such changes in foreign policies are not just merely symbolic. They are very influenced by the nation's internal and external political and economic dynamics. Even in international relations, forming alliances is crucial, but it may not, even if it's not personally favored, and one needs to realize that a country is not run in emotions. It is run on the alliances that you have. It's run on the economic situation that you have, but the political situation and the military situation also has to be taken into consideration. So, this was a calculated move that despite uh, having a t- relationship with Israel, having strategic move, it's not th- it's not out of sympathy for Palestine. It's more about Palestinians, uh, Turkey's national interest because of which Erdogan has to make that statement, despite having good relations with Israel. Now, coming to other countries as well, you have the United Arab Emirates, you have Bahrain. They have also having mixed reactions because in the initial stages, you had UAE president who condemned the Hamas attack and he's, he mentioned, quote, appalled by the reports that Israeli civilians have been abducted as hostages from their home. Then you had a foreign ministry coming up and saying that we have sincere condolences to all the victims of the recent crisis and etc. But... Along that, alongside these kind of statements, the UAE went on to make $20 million uh, uh, humanitarian aid to Palestinians. That was uh, to the United Nations Relief and Work Agency for Palestinian refugees in the Near East. They went on to make build field hospitals for the Palestinian civilians. Moreover, you have Bahrain as well which is again it has normalized ties with israel in 2020 along with united arab emirates and even uh, in the initial stages it had uh, it it had a restrained rhetoric but as the situation unfolded in israel they are also starting attacking the uh, israel they have also started standing for the palestinian cause calling the situation gaza as intolerable uh, in a recent statement that was made by Prince of Bahrain in the IISS Manama dialogue that is also there so also Bahrain also has to take into consideration that it has a significant Shia population and it has time and accused Iran for meddling in Bahrain's internal affairs and creating unrest among the people against the Bahrain's Sunni minority so you have the normalization of ties with israel as well but bahrain also has been forced to navigate a de- delicate and a diplomatic political situation because he has to not they have not only have to balance the public anger that is there but they also have to maintain the political relations that is being there and this underscores a major aspect that has been uh, overlooked time and again you know from when you look at from various parts of the world, the primary analysis was that Arab countries will completely come out in support for the Palestinian cause. But there has been a shift, there has been a remarkable shift that this would not have had this situation unfolded about 20 or 30 years ago, the kind of reactions, the kind of mixed response we are seeing with regards to restrained rhetorics, measured statements that are coming from policymakers would have not come. They would have completely went ahead and supported Palestine, the Palestinian people and Gaza as much as possible and gone against Israel and even the United States. But there have been a recent geopolitical development that have taken place with the normalization of ties with Israel. And why I'm stating this time and again is that there's a huge difference between how Arab policymakers are viewing the situation and how the general public is viewing the situation. Because it's not just the Arabic world, Arab world, but also across the Muslims um, across the world one needs to understand that there may be a conflict that can take place in Syria, a conflict in Sudan or Yemen. There may be regional tensions between the Arab countries and Iran. But when it comes to the Palestinian cause, the entire Islamic world unites. And that is the reason why it's not just Saudi Arabia, it's not just the United Arab Emirates, Bahrain or Turkey or uh, Egypt or Jordan. All of them, despite having supporting Israel in the private private meetings, they are reeling under public pressure, the public uh, opinion, and that is the reason why there is an entire change in the rhetorics and the statements that are coming through. All of this development is not taking place in a changed vacuum. The rhetorics have also changed because of the public pressure that is taking place on the social media. You have the pro-Palestinian uh, protests that are taking place, be it in Tunisia, Lebanon, Jordan, Bahrain, or Egypt. And it's not just limited to the Arab countries or the uh, Middle East. There have been pro-Palestinian movement uh, protests taking place across the world because people are sharing and liking and commenting on the post. They're posting photographs and videos about the situation that is taking place, that the situation that is taking unfolding in Gaza. So, that is the reason why they have to think about uh, the Palestinian people as well, and they have to think about the public opinion as well that is there. And they have to make statements that they are standing with the Palestinian their brothers and sisters, despite having completely different communications that are taking place in private. Now, coming why I am stating this time and again, because... There is a leverage that not just Saudi Arabia, all the Arab countries have. In fact, the second part of the question that you are asked, is there any leverage that uh, that they can be exerted? There are several leverages that can be used. Let, first, let's talk about the Arab League and the Organization of Islamic Cooperation meeting that was to take place uh, in response to the war. Initially, the meetings were planned separately, but due to the lack of consensus among the Arab states on a unified statement or response to the war, they eventually had to merge that meeting. This entire event itself shows that there is a different position and interest among the Arab nation. And the most important factor of the meeting is that there were various clauses that were proposed but were eventually rejected. The first clause was to prevent the transfer of U.S. military equipment to Israel from the U.S. bases and region. Second, freeze all diplomatic and economic ties with Israel, threaten to use oil as a means of leverage, bar flights to and fro from Israel to use uh, from using the... Uh, Arab countries, airspaces spaces, and to dispatch a joint delegation to the US, Europe, and Russia for ceasefire. These clauses were rejected by various countries, including Saudi Arabia, UAE, Bahrain, Sudan, Morocco, Jordan, Egypt, and there were some other uh, countries as well. But, and why I am stating is that, when you are talking, questioning that, are there any leverages that these Middle Eastern countries that can use? these are the leverages that they could have used because let's take let's go a little back in history in 1973 when you had the israel arab war the uh, organization of arab petroleum exporting countries which was led by king faisal of saudi arabia at that time proclaimed an oil embargo that targeted countries supporting israel ta- uh, supporting israel and this for action followed president nixon who was there at that time because he had announced billions of dollars in support for Israel's war, uh, war efforts. As a result, he, these countries under the OEPEC had eventually cut on the oil production and placed on imba- an embargo on the oil exports to the United States. This impact of the embargo was significant because it led to the oil crisis in the 1973 that eventually impacted the global oil market and the global economy, because of which United States was absolutely affected by the embargo and it had was forced to compel uh israel to uh you know stop its advancement because during that war israel was advancing towards damascus and it had almost it had captured sinai so u.s had forced israel to halt its military advancement so that the oil embargo is removed which eventually ended after six months but that was one of the major oil embargo leverage that middle east still has second incident let's take the case of 2018 let's not uh, in 2018 the foreign minister of canada had demanded the release of human rights advocates who were arrested in saudi arabia and the statements and demands were posted on twitter which is now x as a retaliation to the statements and critiques by the canada's foreign canada's foreign minister saudi arabia government considered it as a uh, as a perce- they perceived it as they're interfering in the domestic matters and they expelled the Canadian ambassador. Foreign Minister of Saudi Arabia, which is the Adal al-Jubair at that time, declared Saudi Arabia is not a banana republic and the, all the ambassadors who were there in, uh, were summoned back from Ottawa. The trade and investment agreements that were there between Saudi Arabia and Canada, that were also put on hold. Moreover, flights were also halted between the two countries and you had a lot of students and medical patients in Canada that were withdrawn because they wanted to make sure that any asset or investment that is being there to uh, Canada is diverted somewhere else. It was only in May 2023 that they eventually announced the restoration of the diplomatic relations. Again, then you had the 2022 when uh, the oil prices were still high after the COVID-19. And that is the reason why in July 2022, Biden had gone on a tour to Saudi Arabia. And this was the time when, in his uh, election campaigns, he had called the uh, Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman as a pariah for the death of Jamal Khashoggi. He even went to the extent that he stated in a meeting that there were reports that he has suggested to Prince Mohammed bin Salman that. he held uh, you know he held com- the uh, him completely responsible personally responsible for the killing of jamal khashoggi and this was a very low time at the us and middle east allies foreign policy because uh, even uh, saudi arabia and uae uh, leaders had refused to take calls from biden in retaliation to the statement that was made by biden mohammed bin salman retaliated and confronted him and said Shireen Abu Alak, who was killed by Israeli snipers, she was a Palestinian journalist of American citizenship, um, She, uh, she uh, he went on to say, you have not resolved this case, how can you call about the human rights crisis on Saudi Arabia? In fact, Adil Jubair, who is the Saudi Arabia foreign minister, he stated that uh, he uh, that the crown prince had told Biden that you should not impose American beliefs and values on other countries. And look at the kind of backfiring it has taken place uh, in Afghanistan and Iraq. So this, after the meeting had ended, rather than, uh, you know, the meeting was primarily for increasing the global oil supply. But rather than increasing it that, OPEC, that which was led by, Saudi Arabia and Russia. They eventually reduced the oil supply. They re- cut down the oil production by 2 million barrels per day, and did, which include, re- resulted in reduction in oil supply, increased the global oil prices, and led to a huge impact because uh, President Biden was on the verge of having the midterm elections in during that year. The meeting took place in July. The Midterm elections were in November. So it hurt the Democratic Party in the US a lot. This is the case of the United uh, Saudi Arabia. Let's take the case of uh, Turkey as well. You have uh, Turkey and US had various uh, relationship issues uh, with regards to US supporting the uh, YPG, which uh, which is considered as a terrorist organization in Turkey. Then there was some extradition of one of the critical uh, political figure in Turkey who was responsible was considered res- accused of orchestrating the failed coup in two thousand sixteen against Erdogan. Then, so th- these were two of the major factors b- because of which uh, there were uh, state, and then there was again an issue with regards to some security. Uh, deal that was to take place between Turkey and U.S. and Tur- U.S. was reluctant to do that. There was major huddles with regards to it. So in response to the kind of uh, response between uh, U.S. and Turkey, Turkey went ahead and purchased S-400 uh, missile systems from Russia, despite being a NATO ally. And moreover, in the recent times after the Russia-Ukraine war, you had the Sweden and finland Asking for NATO membership, Turkey being a NATO ally, he they initially Erdogan halted the process and prolonged, eventually delayed that process to a huge extent because in uh, in exchange during a closed door negotiation, Turkey was able to purchase F sixteen fighter jets as a compensation for its exclusion from the F thirty five program that was uh, there. In, because they had purchased the S four hundred missiles, and the there is also a prospect for visa free travel to uh, the European Schengen V areas. So all of this to conclude, like there have been major developments, political developments in the past since nineteen seventy three to this to this day, where all Arab countries have had some or the other kind of leverage, but they are using these leverage only for their economic and political influence they are not they are choosing not to exercise this leverage in favor of the Palestinian cause this indicates a shift in the priorities where maintaining normalized relations with Israel normalizing ties with Israel in future in the case of Saudi Arabia having good cordial relations with the United States has become much more important than the, uh, the situation that is taking place in Gaza. So, the current situation, Palestinian cause is not at the forefront of the foreign policy. Some may argue that this perspective is completely not taken into consideration the complexities of this issue. But look at the recent developments that have taken place. Had there not been public pressure, the rhetorics that we have ch- seen uh, changing in the past few days wouldn't have happened. They All the Middle Eastern countries would have still hold on to that restrained and measured rhetorics. So from a military, economic, political aspect, there are leverages. They are not ready to use it. And they are only ready to use it when it comes to their own national interest, That as we have seen. Because I have just stated a few examples. There are a lot of examples as well, a lot of instances and incidents that have taken take place in the past, where leverages have been used.
0: Okay. And, uh, you know, as we spoke about the Arab countries as well, so I'm, I'm also a little bit interested on the Western perspective. So what is the Western position to this conflict as it continuously continues I would say not continuously just continues to provide support to Israel and we have seen here in Europe as well you know uh, there has been a lot of pressure from the government Uh, so somewhere we saw statements, few of the statements from the European nations coming in that they would like to have a ceasefire but it was after the pressure. So in that perspective what are your thoughts on the Western position as well as how Israeli society also uh, looks at this war and, you know, in, in general terms.
1: Let's begin with the Western perspective, Western reaction to this conflict. I'll focus on two places, which is European Union and the United States. I'll begin with the United States. Now, the United States support for Israel has, is because of a lot of political, strategic and religious reasons, because it was US, former U.S. President uh, Truman who was the first leader, world leader to recognize Israel when it was created in 1948. Then there were, apart from a lot of strategic reasons as well, to support Israel. But apart from that, there is other history, which is a biblical history, along with the historical and ideological connection. Uh, because it has been exemplified time and again. Because... Um, you had when uh, the attack took place on October 7th. It was Anthony Blinken who first went to visit Israel and he said, I come before you not as a, uh, not only as the US State Secretary, but also as a Jew. This statement highlights a significant religious ties and mutual relations between United States and Israel. Moreover, according to the New York Times reports, it was uh, dated about 2017 or 18, it stated that even today, majority of American Christians uh, consider that the creation of Israel and the repatriation of the Jewish people is the fulfillment of a biblical prophecy, which also act as a major factor of garnering uh, substantial American support for Israel. And this support has also influenced The domestic policies as well, domestic politics as well, because there are a lot of strong pro israeli lobbies and government officials at a very high position who are able to influence the U.S. administration decisions in the Middle East and with regards to Israel as well. Now, coming to the recent attacks that have taken place, the support by the uh, White House, by President Biden, has been unprecedented because there have been a lot of statements that have been coming through from uh, the white house in terms of foreign policy the uh, you know i mean uh, i mean i'm not going to talk much about history but in terms of the current situation where you had I- united states is a primary ally for israel and the in the initial stages of the war uh, up until like Until two weeks ago, you had White House spokesperson John Kirby publicly stating that a ceasefire at this time would primarily benefit Hamas and that the U.S. is not setting any red lines. In fact, there was a leaked State Department memo as well, which was confirmed by the Washington Post, and it was first reported by HuffPost, which advised U.S. diplomats to avoid using phrases like, you know, de-escalation or ceasefire, end to violence or bloodshed these kind of because as they did not as they do not align with the us uh, policies and but and apart from that you also had the united states of america uh, they had sent in aircraft carriers and the kind of statements that have been coming through from the united states are unprecedented because the, this is you have the Secretary of State who had traveled to Israel. He had President Biden who had traveled to, to Israel. And he was saying that as long as US is there, Israel is not standing alone. These are huge statements for any um, country to make, any administration to make. And moreover, in the current situation, this attack has taken at a very inconvenient time for the United States as well. Because let's look at the overall perspective. From a foreign policy perspective, you had, uh, US had completely shifted its attention from the Middle East to the Indo-Pacific and China. And then you had the Russia-Ukraine war, there is the Sudan war, the Iran uh, nuclear deal is almost considered dead. And then you have then you have the war, This war taking place, and there are statements that are coming from President, uh, former President Trump, who claims that if he we were still in office, he wouldn't have led any wars to take place, which is in contrast to Biden's administration, where already two wars have taken place, and these are taking place at the cost of U.S. taxpayers' money. So. These factors are also needs to be taken into consideration because it's not in isolation. You have the 2024 presidential elections as well. But apart from that, so the Israel-Saudi Arabia normalization of ties was considered as a centerpiece for the foreign policy for the Biden administration that look, we have been able to do it to garner the conservative support from the United States voter base. But the attack that had taken place on October 7, then you had the ground offensive, which has led to the humanitarian crisis that is there in Gaza. It has completely changed the situation, domestic politics in the United States, because there has, especially considering the challenges. President Biden is facing now with re-election. And then now you have the Muslim and Arabic voters who have traditionally been the strong voter base for uh, Democratic uh, Party as well. In fact, in, uh, in 2020 elections, he had Biden had com- uh, considerable backing from Arab and Muslim Americans. But due to the conflict and the ground offensive and the kind of support that U.S. is providing to Israel, there was a recent poll that was conducted by the Arab American Institute, which in, indicated that there is a sharp decline in the support, which is to now around 17%. This shift is largely attributed to the ongoing conflict in Gaza, where the Arab and Muslim American voters are saying, if there is no ceasefire, there is no, not going to be any vote for you. This plays a huge role because... You have the recent uh, uh, reports that are coming through where former President Trump is leading several key states, including uh, Nevada, Georgia, Arizona, Michigan, and Pennsylvania. And this is important because even a small number of support, small number of Arab and Muslim vote can change the tide in swing states like Michigan. And it is very important that the Biden administration gets those votes and the change in the voting pattern is not taking place again in vacuum the change in voting has again to do with the social media activity where you have a lot of uh, you know <clears throat> posts and reels there have been stories uh, photographs and videos that are being uploaded and this has influenced the voter base now why i'm stating all of this all of this is because unlike the older generation who relied on traditional media like TV, newspaper, and radio, the present, which is a millennia, the Gen Z generation, that uses social media for news and information. So they are completely looking at these photos and images, and their uh, support has shifted from uh, Israel to Palestine, Palestinian narratives. In fact, there was a recent... uh, you know, uh, recent polls that was conducted by Winnipeg University that re- led that there was a growing sympathy among bet- uh, your voters, young voters, towards the Palestinians that has rise from thirteen percent to twenty four percent. And until the October seventh attack, there was an equal division of voter uh, voting support for Israel and Palestine. But after the ground offensive, that has dramatically changed because now about fifty two percent. Young voters are now uh, supporting the Palestinians and a Palestinian narrative over the Israeli narrative. And the support amongst the young people for Israel and Palestine has fell from 51% to 29%. Moreover, President Biden is also facing a lot of challenges, not just in terms of the voter base that has completely changed, but also amongst the growing division among the Democratic Party regarding Israel's response and the kind of support that the U.S. administration is providing to Israel—that is the reason why. Why I am stating all these stats. Why I am stating all these electoral things is because this is the sub. This is the changing situation on ground on the public base. Because all these social media has influ, is eventually uh, influencing the voter base for the President Biden's re-election. And that is the reason why until two weeks ago, the kind of humanitarian pause or temporary tour that could not have taken place is taking place now. It was only after the release of these kind of reports, the Arab American Institute that was the the, uh, polls and survey that it had released. Only after that, Within one week, you had various developments, uh, you know, uh, taking place in the United States, and then you had President Biden calling up Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, calling for uh, to agree to a humanitarian pause. This is under pressure, and because of that, eventually Netanyahu was also forced to agree that okay, there would be pauses, but it won't lead to a complete ceasefire. This underscores the complex situation where the external factors, the foreign policy factors, are also influencing the internal situation in the country. Moreover, Blinken had not just gone on one, but about four regional tours to gain support from major Middle East uh, allies, but also to tell them that, okay, please support us, even in the public as well. But the leaders, Arabic Arab leaders, are themselves under pressure from the public support and public sentiment. That um, Anthony Blinken faced encounter and resistance from the leaders when he had gone to these meetings. And Turkey is one of the uh, example where he didn't, Erdogan was not even ready to meet him. So, in this situation. There has been a change in uh, change in the stance of the President Biden as well because he has to look at the internal situation as well and the window of opportunity for calling for a pause, calling for a ceasefire, making sure that the complete shift of the voter base is not taking place to such an extent that it's going to impact the elections himself where he's not re-elected again. Because at this point of time, Everyone is now focusing on Gaza and ground offensive. But there has been an increasing Israeli settler violence that is taking place against the Palestinians in West Bank. And that is the reason why the United States, for the first time, had to come forward and say that they are going, they are considering individual sanctions on Israeli settlers. This was again to appease you know the voter base that, okay, see, we are talking about it. We are making some decisions about it. We are looking after it. And also, right before an election, you can't have such a fluid situation regarding the voters and the uh, demography and ethnicities that are going to vote you or are going to vote against you. And that is the reason why even Anthony Blinken had to call Qatar and tell them that, okay, you are controlling Al Jazeera, which is the media house, and it's showing Israel in a negative light. You need to reel them in. Because it's resulting in anti-Israeli sentiments that is influencing the situation in public uh, in US and that is impacting our vote bank. From that perspective, the West, with regards to the United States, the sentiment, the position that United States also had in the beginning, which is unwavering support for uh, Israel, has completely changed now from calling Netanyahu for a humanitarian pause to having this temporary pause which was extended for such a long time, which is a huge thing. This has shown that not it's not just the Arab leaders who are under pressure, but it is also White House administration that is absolutely under pressure, which was right before the upcoming 2024 presidential elections. And this situation, how White House maneuvers through this political situation is going to be a key test, foreign policy test for Biden. Coming to the second part, which is the European Union. The European Parliament had condemned uh, released a statement that they condemned the Hamas' attack, but also expressed serious concern for humanitarian this situation in Gaza, which underscores that there are a lot of developments that are taking place in the European Union as well because it's a bloc comprising of various countries. And a response from the European Union is very important because it plays a huge role because it is also the largest donor for the uh, Palestinian aid. And despite having that kind of a leverage, because there is an internal division between uh, the states as well, the bloc as well, they are not able to play a significant role in influencing the situation in this conflict. So, let's take the example. You know, you have Oliver Behrel, who is the European Commissioner for uh, Neighborhood and Enlargement. That is the designation that he has. After the October 7th attack, he suspended all... uh, He suspended about $728 million of development aid to Palestinians and stated that it's under review. Later, that decision was reversed, and EU later came out and said that they would be reviewing payments to ensure that they're not being mis- misused. Why? Because you had Spain, you had is uh, Ireland and Luxembourg and various countries that had criticized EU for punishing all the Palestinians for an attack that was launched by Hamas, and eventually, uh, which... Uh, That has eventually impacted the Israeli society as well because there were about 1,200 civilian casualties in the Israeli society uh, on October 7th attack. Meanwhile, on the other hand, you had this statement like that, then it was taken back and they said that it's uh, not going to be misused. You have the European Commission, the European Parliament, which is hosting Israeli flags outside their headquarters. Then you have Spain's foreign minister and Spain's other social rights minister who had accused Israel of carrying out planned genocide, calling out Israel for having collective punishment on Palestinians, saying that we should not confuse Hamas with the Palestinian people, and said, also targeted the United States and European Union because they're supporting Israel's policy of apartheid and occupation. And why I'm saying that, why I'm specifically mentioning these statements is because these statements are in strong contrast to the stance that has been taken by Ursula von der Leyen, who is the European Commission President. Because the the stance that has been taken by her is perceived very pro-Israel. Because uh, this was the the approach that Wonderline had taken highlight is highlighted because she traveled to Israel as well to express solidarity, especially after the attack on October seventh. She during that event, she had called for the release of hostages. and that was a move that was set by I mean, the visit itself was under heavy criticism because, It was considered that, okay, you are talking about the Israeli society, Israeli people. You are not talking about the Palestinian casualties that is increasing due to the ground offensive. And the extent of criticism was evident because you had staff members, about 800 staff members of the European Union, who wrote a letter to Wanderlion protesting that you should have a balanced approach to it and you, if you're looking at the Israeli civilians you should also look at the Palestinian civilians who are dying at a huge, uh, who are having such a huge casualties because of the ground offensive. And that is the reason why Wonderline was forced to adopt a much more balanced approach. She eventually caused for, called for a humanitarian pause in Gaza and there have been a shift in rhetorics that you can see. And this also underscores that Again, why I'm saying this time and again is because you have you have Spanish uh, ministers saying like that. You have Ursula von der Leyen speaking like this. Then you have you know uh, countries like France uh, who are calling for complete uh, immediate ceasefire. And, uh, and you know then you have Germany who is who is playing a critical role in international politics, but they are having the pro-Israeli stance because of the kind of history that they have had with Israel and Jews back in the holocaust during the world war ii so and now the commission that once was calling for a suspension of aid to uh, israel has further increased their uh, humanitarian aid which is uh about to over 100 million uh euros for gaza this year so in this case as well European Union and US have to take have taken into consideration the public sentiment, the public outcry, and they are having different perspectives amongst themselves. So it's not a united block. That's the reason why they are not even they are not able to take a significant step and involvement in the current conflict. Everyone is talking about, you know, Western perspective and the, what are the response by the Middle Eastern countries about uh, the current conflict. But also one also needs to focus on the Israeli society as well. Now, in the past year, Israel has been in the news for various reasons, be it the judicial reforms, be it the recent elections that took place in 2022 where Benjamin Netanyahu was elected. And most importantly, Israel and Saudi Arabia normalization of ties. In fact, in September 2023, in the uh, United Nations General Assembly meeting that took place in New York, Benjamin Netanyahu was holding the map of a Middle East, and where he had completely wiped off uh, Gaza and West Bank, and he was focusing on how they are going to normalize ties, and that is a political and security, economic development in the region, and which is a huge significant uh, move move ahead for the Middle East politics, and because it's considered as one of the greatest deals in Cold War, etc. But and at this point, Palestinians felt betrayed. Because no one was talking about the Palestinian cause or the Israel-Palestinian solution, Uh, that was not in the news at all. And moreover, Benjamin Netanyahu's policy was that he was engaging more with Hamas by stating that they are transferring funds to Gaza so as to maintain separation between the Palestinian Authority in West Bank and Hamas in Gaza so as to prevent the establishment of a Palestinian state and having that conversation about the two-state solution in the first place he also grant there were also more work visas that were granted to palestinians from gaza to work in israel that increased the income for workers which allowed hamas to increase its tax revenue this situation eventually backfired because while netanyahu was trying to have this divide and rule policy he should have realized that the palestinian authority is still agreeing to talk about the two-state solution, whereas Hamas has historically advocated for the destruction of the state of Israel and Jews, and it's a part of the charter. So this strategy completely backfired when the attack took place on October 7th, which is unprecedented because since nineteen seventy-three Arab-Israeli War, even in the nineteen seventy-three Arab-Israeli War, Egypt and Syria were only able to breach the borders in Sinai and Golan Heights, respectively. But in this attack, Palestinian factions were able; Hamas was able to capture Israeli territories, and it led to the highest number of casualties in Israeli society since Holocaust. So, look at it from Prime Minister's uh, Benjamin Netanyahu's perspective. He was nicknamed Mr. Security during his campaign. Uh, that brought him into uh, the office, and he has always focused on uh, the security aspect of Israel. But and at at a time, and this attack took place at a time when the Palestinian cause was dying. The Palestinian uh, cause, the knowns talking about uh, the Palestinian two-state solution. Arab countries were not, who were supposed to stand by the Palestinian brothers and sisters had been normalizing ties or were in the verge of normalizing ties with Israel. So this ground offensive that has taken place in Gaza against Hamas and the annihilation of Hamas, it is much more for attaining a political victory as well because there is an increasing anger, growing anger in the Israeli society for the resignation of Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu as they blame him for this attack because it's not just the uh, divide and rule policy between uh, that was implemented by uh, in Netanyahu, but also because there was a political crisis in Israel. They have just marked by five general elections in the past four years. Moreover, there was a judicial reforms that were brought in by Netanyahu at a time when he was facing charges of bribery, fraud, and other offences. So. That judicial reforms that he had brought in led to such a situation, led to a notable response from Israeli society that a lot of reservists who were to report to active duty refused to do so. And this reduced the readiness of the Israeli defense forces to engage in any conflict. And at that time, heads of various intelligence services had told Bond Netanyahu, that there was going to be a potential consequences of the political decisions that you are making within the country because in case the, the, because the enemies would use this as a leverage to attack israel to alongside that when netanyahu was confronted you know he should take the responsibility uh, whether uh, for the attack or at least whether there were prior warnings or not he declined to refuse uh, to provide any direct answer and rather he there's a growing criticism because he also blamed other uh, Israeli intelligence officers and departments for the intelligence failure, despite everyone taking the blame. And this is significant because there has been an increasing protest taken, uh, across Israel. And uh, moreover, additionally, this is very significant because this is being led by the family of uh, families of the hostages. And it is gr- showing a growing discontent in the society that you are strat- putting the political and military strategies over the hostage situation and everything. In fact, as per polls, 80% of the Israelis believe that the Prime Minister should be held personally responsible for the security failure. And let me remind you of that. After the Yom Kippur War, Golda Meir, who was the Prime Minister, had resigned. And this attack that took place on October 7th has led to the highest casualties. And this attack also took place coincidentally one day after the 50th anniversary of the Yom Kippur Mall. So it doesn't matter what Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, the longest serving Prime Minister of Israel, has done in the past. It doesn't matter what kind of security guarantee he has provided for Israeli society. It doesn't matter what kind of political life he has had. But his entire legacy is now going to be based on and how it's going to be judged, on how is going to deal with this situation.
0: Okay, I think uh, we are now at the end of the podcast, as we have provided extensive uh, perspective on all these issues. Uh, but still, I would like to say that, of course, this is a very uh, long-term conflict that has been going on for decades, and it's deep-rooted in history as well. And, of course, we haven't, I mean, we shouldn't even expect an immediate solution. If there is a solution, of course, gradually it can take place. Uh, but from your perspective, how do you expect the situation to end and possibly have some of the other long-term solution in the near future?
1: You know, when we are discussing about the Palestinian cause, the Israel-Palestine conflict, It's crucial to understand the complexities behind the origins of the conflict because everyone, when we are talking in the media, when we are reading, everyone is focusing on the timeline that began in 1948 after the creation of the State of Israel. But the roots of this conflict stretch just back to centuries, even millennia. Because on one side, you have Jews who are claiming their right to the land, while on the other hand, you have the Palestinians who assert their right to the same land. Now, I don't want to dwell deeply into this topic because I'll be honest, I do not have that much of knowledge, the biblical knowledge, the, you know, the religious uh, history of the conflict. And there are a lot of people who have dedicated their lives to understanding this conflict and uh, understanding the historical Palestinian and the Jewish narrative, as well as the religious uh, aspect that determines the legitimacy, legitimate claims to this territory but so the attack that took place on october 7th it was not just like the attack has taken place it is from a broader perspective you have to take into consideration you have this kind of history and despite that i as i mentioned before the united states who has been a primary negotiator you know with the oslo accords or Camp Accords, and played a critical role in the region it had moved ahead it had pivoted to Indo-Pacific China, Russia Arab countries had moved on a lot of countries had uh, normalized ties with Israel and Saudi Arabia was on the verge of normalizing ties with Israel so no one was talking about the Palestinian cause, no one was talking about the Palestinian people, no one was talking about the Palestinian rights and that is the reason why if you see, when you say what is the future scenario, how are you going to look at it I think the entire conversation has changed. Until October 7th, the conversation was not about, you know, what are the Palestinian rights? It was about other political, economic and military developments that are taking place in the region. So in my perspective, talking about this conversation, having this Palestinian cause, Palestinian movement, everything has gained momentum after the attack, regardless of the bloodshed that it has eventually led to. But... Compared to the days and months and weeks before the October 7th, we are much more closer to having a conversation to have a two-state solution. And the world has also come to realize that you may have any key development in the region, but it is not going to take place until and unless all the relevant parties regarding the uh, Israel-Palestine conversation are sharing a table and sitting down for negotiation now i don't know how the conversation will start i don't know how the conversation will take place where it will take place when it will take place i do not know because there are a lot of experts uh, who have been researching about it for decades but one needs to completely focus that there is no way ahead but to negotiate about this because even when the uh, you know benjamin netanyahu was speaking in uh, the United Nations General Assembly meeting in September, he was saying that I am very much optimistic about these kind of developments, even though people were not trusting me because they were saying that, you know, Palestinian cause should be at the forefront, etc. cetera. But they, even they would be happy that we are normalizing ties. So any normalization of ties is not going to take, uh, is not going to have, ha- lead to a peaceful situation in the region because you are only going to have attacks every couple of months or every couple of years till the time or solution. It may be a one state or two state solution. I don't know. But conversation needs to start and it should start at a very fast processing pace because it has been stagnant for the past couple of decades.
0: Okay, great. Uh, So yeah, I think uh, we have discussed this topic in a very extensive manner this time. Uh, and I believe, uh, I think, uh, un- unless and until there are more developments on this side, we won't be possibly having an immediate episode, I think, uh, because like with Apurva, and then previously be- uh, with Dr. Barnia, with uh, uh, the internal office of Israel, we discussed like the in and out of this issue. Uh, so, yeah, thank you very much, Apoorva, again, uh, for your valuable insights i hope the audience takes away a lot of key things from this conversation and i hope to record uh, some more episodes in the future with you on some other topics as well thank you very much
1: thank you so much omkar for giving me this opportunity again
0: thank you for listening to this episode if you find our podcast insightful then please like, share, and subscribe. See you in the next episode. Thank you.